Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hey, friends. Hey, it's Lisa from Black Women Stitch and the Stitch Please podcast, and I am delighted to be starting this February, this Black History Month with, as I always say, a very special episode because this episode is with Elizabeth Way, Associate Curator at the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology and the curator of Anne Lowe, an American Couturier. this, This exhibit is not just an exhibit, It is also a monograph, which means that it is um, a book and the book is as beautiful as it is well and thoroughly researched. It also is a symposium. So Elizabeth Way has taken Anne Lowe from being someone who was mentioned in the history of fashion, you know, sometimes as a footnote, sometimes not even at all and turned her into the main attraction that she is over-deserved to be. And so June Jordan has written, we are the ones that we have been waiting for. And when I think about Elizabeth Way, that is exactly what I think. Elizabeth Way, welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. And thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be in conversation with you. I am going to get us started with what is your sewing story? Um, if you have one, um, I, we know you as, as a scholar and a curator um, and a researcher, but I think you also said you were interested in design at one point. And so can you talk about your sewing story? Yeah, so when I was a kid, I grew up in uh, a pretty rural space in Southern Maryland. I loved fashion. I read Vogue magazine as a preteen, as a teenager, and I wanted to be a fashion designer. So I studied fashion design in my undergraduate um, education. I also studied history because I loved history. And I went on to study pattern making. So I did work for a very, very brief time as a pattern maker in the New York fashion industry where I, you know, created patterns and sewed a lot. That didn't quite work out for me. It wasn't what I expected. And so I transitioned into theater costuming. So I was a stitcher in a costume shop and also an assistant costume designer. And at that point, um, I decided to make a change. And I went to graduate school where I transitioned to fashion studies. And that's where my curatorship stems from. That is so exciting. And can you talk with us about what does a curator do? We have heard things like curate your Instagram feed or whatever. Um, But you went to school to study this. Can you tell us about what is the process um, or the role that a curator takes on when they agree to do a project? So curators um, curate exhibitions. And so really we're using historical material culture. Other curators use art and other objects to tell historical narratives or contemporary narratives. It's really how do we tell stories and um, convey information through objects. So I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of research, but I do get to interact with fashion objects all the time in our own collection and other collections. And that's really a privilege to see these beautiful things that people have sewn in the past. And what I appreciate about it is that you kind of have your head on a swivel. You know how to sew. You know how to make patterns. You do costuming. And then you say, I would rather study and teach because I think that museum exhibitions also 
are teaching institutions and we learn so much. And so when you do your writing, when you start to create something like a caption, for example, um, or a description for a catalog, how does your research impact that process? You can only put so much on a card, right? You only get so much space. Can you talk about what it means to compress what you know from your years and decades of study into a 200-word card that we might look at on a placard? So it's a huge challenge to distill all that information. So you really have to be choosy. And really, in an ex- in a label, in an exhibition for an object, you can really only convey about one maybe two pieces of information. So it's really about choosing the most important story. And for me, I always want it to connect back to the object. I want that information to make you go back and look at that object instead of just telling you like a little factoid. And my experiences in sewing and pattern making has really helped me kind of decipher objects, kind of realize the kind of information I want to convey about them. And I think that that shows in the way that you talk about the work of Anne Lowe, the way that you identify Um, the pieces, the way that you're able to read a garment and to see what is required for it to do the work. We hear the word couture and talk about that word a lot, but I would love for you to define for us what couture is and do you see a difference between couture and haute couture? So there is a difference between haute couture and couture. Haute couture is designated by a uh, labor union governing body in France called the Chambre Syndicale. And this is an organization that was started in the 19th century. And in, in the same way that like Champagne has to be from the region of Champagne, Ocator yes. has kind of designated itself as Parisian designers who make um, custom made to order fashion. And so in a wider sense, couture, especially the way I use it with Anne Lowe, refers to made to measure clothing as opposed to ready to wear that you can buy in lots of different sizes off the rack. So Anne Lowe made custom clothing for each individual client, but it was also of the highest quality. It was innovative design. So it was it's this very high level of design and construction. So Haute Couture is specific to Paris, but she was definitely working on that same level. And I think that this is why when you were saying before that when the Meriwether Post heiress took Anne, like when they met up in, in Paris and she was taking her around and introducing her as and Lowe, um, head of the American House of Lowe, that that was a big deal. Can you talk about why that was so significant for this woman, this heiress, to do this with Anne Lowe? Well, Paris was the global fashion capital, and it had been since the 18th century. And every other kind of designer or person interested in fashion around the Western world, whether you lived in the United States or Australia, um, you were looking to Paris for your trends. It's really not until the 1970s that Americans kind of come out under the shadow of Paris. So Anne Lowe, like every designer in America at that time, would have been you know, observing these trends in Paris. And Lowe actually went to Paris as a fashion reporter. The Black newspaper, the New York Age, sent her in 1949 to cover the couture shows. And she created a design kind of based on it, which was photographed in the newspaper. So yes. it was there that she ran into her client, Marjorie Merriweather Post, who was heir to the Post serial fortune. Of course, we still know Post serial today, but she was a huge couture client. And she, when she introduced Anne Lowe to Christian Dior as, you know, the proprietor of the House of Lowe, she was putting her on the same level as the French haute couturiers. And this was really unusual because many of her clients, she sewed for the most elite 
white women in the United States, Rothschilds, DuPonts, Rockefellers. But few of them kind of acknowledged her um, as their designer. There was much less prestige in having a dress made by an American designer than a French couturier. But Post was not having that. And she really kind of advocated for Lowe as similar on the same level to the French couturiers. And I really appreciate that because what we see in the same way you said, the same way that that champagne can only come from a region of France, the French are pretty good about doing this. They are talk about gatekeeping. I'm sure there's a special word for it in French, right? They create they're the same people that created this association in the 17th century about which words were allowed to be introduced into the French language. They are incredibly protective of their cultural assets, you know? Yes. So I, I really appreciate that she says, you know what? Guess who's just as good, you know, um, as you all, you know, and low, right? Let, let's, let's back up a bit and talk about your thesis um, because I want to kind of get a sense of the journey that you took. Your thesis was on Elizabeth Keckley. Um, an enslaved seamstress who um, also worked for Mary Todd Lincoln and was her dressmaker for quite some time. And I think she used her 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 sewing skills to buy her freedom, I believe. Yes. And then we have Anne Lowe on the other side of this being someone who was born in 1898. And that is like being the first generation in her family to be born into freedom. Can you talk a little bit about what type of confluences or intersections you saw between Keckley and Lowe? Well, I first discovered Keckley and Lowe during an internship that I had with the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture. So this was way back in 2012, before they had their beautiful museum. We were working in office space, and I worked under um, a curator named Elaine Nichols. And so I had already had a year of grad school under my belt, and I took a lot of fashion history, but I had never heard of these Black designers. The Smithsonian acquired the collection of the Black Fashion Museum, which was created by Lois K. Alexander, a phenomenal figure um, in Black fashion. Um, but the Smithsonian had this big collection, and they were looking for a kind of interns to do initial research on it. And so it was digging through these papers and these spreadsheets that I first discovered, Keckley and Lowe. And I was so fascinated by them because they both have incredible life stories of just the perseverance and their talent. Um, but in my master's thesis, which I decided to write my master's thesis on them, um, I kind of positioned them as what I think of as transitional designers. So we have mm. so many enslaved dressmakers in the United States who are almost anonymous. Um, there's a couple of pieces of material culture in museums, a few accounts in scattered journals, but we don't know much about them. But Keckley and Lowe were able in different ways to transform that enslaved labor into free labor. Keckley did it mm. through her transition from enslavement to freedom. Um, Lowe did that by learning the enslaved skills of her grandmother and mother and, you know, always working as a free woman. But they were really important in kind of this transition of Black fashion labor. And this is happening before what we think of as um, kind of the celebrity fashion designer that we really see come up in the 1960s and 70s. So they sit between anonymous enslaved dressmakers and designers like Stephen Burroughs and Scott Berry and Willie Smith, who are working oh. in the ready-to-wear industry. So this right. is, and even though they, um, you know, have are separated by decades, um, they do have these very similar ways of working, which are these beautiful 19th century artisanal um, kind of craft um, and knowledge around artisanship. No, I, I think that transition is a beautiful phrase because it talks about the ways in which fashion and sewing and design are constantly in motion, that this is not a static process. And the reason that people um, come to fashion or find it so intriguing is because it is so active. 
that there's so many changes that can be on the horizon. I wanted to talk a little bit about Anne Lowe and her work as someone who would outfit the elite. I think there was a little quote that she might have said something about she doesn't sew for Sally Sue or something like that. Like you have, I don't know, I know you know what it is, but that her work was um, the things that she did were for people who could only for the people who could afford it. Like it was one of those, if you have to ask how much you really should not be having an Anlo dress, like that is not going to be for you. Can you talk about like what it meant for her to straddle um, so many different levels of society to kind of come from a very um, labor intensive, um, a background that might've been marked by poverty that was mitigated because they, she had these skills, but also some folks not wanting to pay what the, the work was worth, et cetera. Can you share a little bit about that and that challenge? Absolutely. So Lowe learned dressmaking from her grandmother and mother, and her grandmother had been enslaved. She gained her freedom through her husband about 1860. And Lowe was born at the end of the 19th century, and she grew up as a child learning these skills. But what I think is just as important that I'm sure her grandmother and mother taught her was how to navigate these social relationships with these elite white women. She was born in Clayton, Alabama, and her grandmother and mother established a shop in Montgomery, Alabama. During the 1910s, um, their clients included the governor's wife. So these Black women were mixing with these elite women who, in a lot of ways, these social structures hadn't changed very much since enslavement. So these were savvy women who knew how to navigate this. And I'm sure they taught Lo and her sisters how to do this. And so we see Lowe throughout her career attain these positions of recognition um, as an expert but also have to make all of these concessions because of her race and her gender. For Mm. example, there's an amazing article that was written about her in the Tampa um, Tribune, I believe, a Tampa newspaper in the 1920s. She moved there um, very, very young as a teenager or her early 20s, and um, she was known as this beautiful wedding dress designer. Um, So Mm -hmm. this article is interviewing her about, you know, what are the changing trends in brides, talking about all of her fantastic dresses. She had made hundreds of wedding dresses by this point in her early 20s. But she also talks about how when she attends these weddings, she wears a maid's uniform. She attends these weddings to make sure that everything fits correctly. She's not just just dressing the bride. She's dressing the bridesmaid. She's dressing the mother, the bride, sometimes the guests. So she shows up to make sure there's no, no one steps on hems. If anything needs repair, she's there. But she wears a maid's uniform. And so Mm. even though she's being upheld as this expert, she's still living in the Jim Crow South. Yes. She's still navigating these relationships. And as she, her career progresses, she moves to New York. She does have a lot of clients who are trying to haggle um, with her, trying to um, lower the prices. These are some of the richest women in America. And so, um, you know, there's all of these dynamics that she constantly deals with, balancing, um, you know, her self-perception. She knows that she's an amazing designer, that she's a worthy and dignified person, balancing it with um, kind of the expectations of the the white women she deals with. And she has very close relationships. She has a lot of admiration for many people, white women in her life. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know that there's always these kind of... um, these dynamics, not just because of race, but because of class. Yes. And the idea that somehow she is in the laboring class, even if the work that she's doing is so artful. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And I think and that's one of the things I appreciated about seeing the gowns in in person is that and this is something you all can get as well from the monograph. Um, I would highly recommend this book. It is a beautiful coffee table book. And when you read it, the, the work in it is so 
powerful and so thoroughly well-researched, but also easy to read. Um, I really feel like I learned a lot. And in speaking of, of one of the things that's in the monograph is that you honor the work of the person that kind of helped you get started on this. And that was Margaret Powell, who passed away before she got a chance to see this work come to fruition. Can you talk a bit about Margaret Powell and her work and why you thought it important to reproduce a condensed version of her thesis in the, in the book? So Margaret Powell is an amazing scholar, and she was really the first person to take a serious academic look at Anlo. Anlo had appeared in like, you know, smaller books, mention, you know, kind of um, books that survey Black designers, but mm-hmm. no one had really dug into her biography before Margaret Powell did so for her master's thesis in 2012. So I met with her. I first met her when I was interning at the Smithsonian. She was in D.C. at that time, and we stayed in touch. In fact, she was meant to write a chapter on Anlo for a, an edited volume I did on Black designers. Very unfortunately, she died of cancer in 2019. But she is the person who um, conceived of the exhibition that we have at Winterthur and the uh, resulting book. She is the engine behind all of it. She first encountered Anne Lowe through an object at the Hillwood Museum, which is the home of Marjorie Merriweather Post in Washington, D.C., She worked at the Carnegie Museum as well as Winterthur, and it was her genius that was pulling all of this together. When she passed away, Winterthur very kindly asked me to um, curate the exhibition, and we dedicated it to Margaret because she was such an amazing scholar, but such a kind person. Everyone who came in contact with her loved her, and so we were so happy to be able to bring her vision to life. And I think when I attended the symposium as well as the exhibition, I could feel that she was being honored through this. Um, I remember some folks mentioning this at the beginning of some of the lectures on Friday. There's a lovely picture of her with, you know, some comments about the work that she did. So it really is this beautiful way that Black women are uplifting and supporting other Black women, making sure that we remain cited making sure that, you know, because citation is an important practice, you know, in academics, right? Like the reason that your work does not get forgotten is that other people cite it. And not only did you cite it, but you included it in, in, in the book. And I just thought that was so beautiful. Hey, friends. Hey, I know you're enjoying the audio version of Stitch, Please. And thanks so much for listening. But you're missing out on all the great stuff going on behind the scenes. That's why I'm inviting you to join our Black Women's Stitch Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can see all the video versions of the podcast. Plus, you get some amazing swatch cards. You know how much I love these swatch cards. Look, look, see how cool these are? I. Oh, wait, you, you can't. You can't see them because you are not yet on the Patreon. So when you join the Patreon, you'll be able to see this, me showing you these amazing cards. We also have some great perks at the other tiers, like discounts, swag, office hours, and more. Don't be the last sewist in the group now. Head over to patreon.com slash blackwomenstitch or click the link in the show notes and become a Patreon supporter today. We truly cannot do this without you. So thank you so much. I want to talk a little bit about building out a symposium. Why did you think it was important to not just have the exhibition at this gorgeous, gorgeous estate? Um, 
um, in Delaware. It was it was a beautiful experience. It was huge, y'all. It was huge. Um, and we had to take a bus to go from the venue where the conference was being held to where we could see the gowns. Why was it important to have a symposium and to pull together all of the people, um, including your mentors from the Smithsonian, um, to come through and, and have these conversations about low? Well, there's so many amazing scholars who are working on low or working on Black fashion who have so much to contribute. Um, and people working kind of in contemporary spaces, advocating and designing, working uh, in fashion. And so it was really important for us um, for me and for Winterthur, Alexander Deutsch and Kim Collison um, at Winterthur, who um, helped organize the exhibition. Um, it was really important for us to bring these people together and, you know, put them in conversation with an audience. And we were able to, you know, think about her history, think about her impact, think about contemporary Black designers, but also the conservation work that went into the exhibition. Um, Winterthur is the really one of the only venues, one of the only venues that could have put on this exhibition. Um, mm. The conservation work that went into mounting these dresses, doing repairs when needed. Um, it was absolutely phenomenal. We also recreated the Jacqueline Kennedy dress that Anlo yes. designed. Um, and that was a project through Winterthur and the University of Delaware. And so all of these people coming together to talk about their work, not only was a way for us to honor Anne Lowe, honor Margaret Powell, and all the scholars who were working on it, but also really advance the field in terms of research, in terms of conservation, in terms of experiential kind of um, hands-on research. So bringing these people together and having a, a couple of days where we could talk about this. We also had Precious LaBelle, who's an artist, who's yes. thinking about Black women in fashion. Bringing these people together was really important for us to kind of move the conversation forward um, and have this dialogue of exchange where we can expand the scholarship. And I want to talk about bringing in the students. I'll start with the recreation of the of the wedding gown. Um, I think that that is one of the gowns for which she is most noted. Um, Jackie, uh, Jackie Bouvier's wedding to John F. Kennedy. And I believe the dress the original dress is, you said, it's undisplayable. It's at the Kennedy Library in mm -hmm. Boston, but it's it's in terrible condition and can't be moved. Uh, can you talk about that process? Because the recreation of the dress, why was it important to recreate it? And when I look back at the notes about how much time it took the team to create the dress versus Anne Lowe to create the dress, that it, it's amazing. So can you just tell us a bit about this gown and about the significance of having Anne Lowe be the person to create this, what will, what became an iconic gown. Absolutely. So I'll talk a little bit about the history of the gown and then I'll talk a little bit about the recreation. So Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy's 1953 wedding dress is by far Anne Lowe's most famous dress. This was a dress that was photographed nationally, internationally, and has, you know, been on people's like, you know, pin boards, inspiration boards for their weddings, like since that time. Right. Lowe was chosen as the designer because she was the go-to designer of um, Janet Auchincloss, who was Jacqueline's mother. So Anne Lowe made Jacqueline Bouvier, Lee Bouvier, and their stepsister, um, Nina Auchincloss. She made all of their debutante gowns before this. So she was a family dressmaker. Um, so she was selected for um, to create this gown. She um, talks about in later interviews how Jacqueline came in with her mother. They discussed the silhouette. She sketched for her um, and they designed this beautiful gown. Lowe designed this beautiful gown for her. Um, and so big commission. We knew she had 
Kennedy had been debutante of the year when she came out in 47. So this was a big society wedding. Um, Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy was already a senator. Um, right. Ten days before the wedding, a water pipe burst in Anlow's workroom, and it ruined the wedding dress along with um, several of the bridesmaids' dresses. Anlow had to pull on every person in her network who could help her, all the women who worked in her shop, but women from her church, even her son, um, like pitched in and helped with the sewing. They had to recreate all of these pieces. Um, so she recreated this um, Jackie Kennedy wedding dress that she had already spent two months making. She recreated it in five days. And they used the other five days to recreate all the bridesmaids dresses. She ran out the clock and delivered, hand delivered the dresses to Newport, Rhode Island the morning of the wedding. She was a consummate professional. She got it done. She never mentioned this to Jenna Auchincloss. And instead of making a profit, she took a $2,000 loss, $2,000 in the 1950s on this commission. The most kind of thing, heartbreaking part about this is that she was not widely publicized as the dresses designer. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, the fact that she was a black woman, the fact that she was an American designer, there was just not as much cachet in kind of announcing that. Also, you know, this kind of culture of who are you wearing was not kind of the same today mm. as it was back then. So there's a lot of reasons. It certainly could have been mentioned. It would not have been unusual for her name to be mentioned, but it wasn't. And so that was a really heartbreaking um, kind of part of that experience, which ended up kind of being a disaster. However, this dress was her calling card. Her clients knew that she made it. People in the know knew that she made it. And she always displayed images of it in her salon after that. It was her calling card. It's such a beautiful gown. And I remember in one of the news articles that you shared um, at the symposium, it talked about someone saying, oh, um, she wore a dress made by a Negro designer no, no couture or no hope couture or something like that. And I, I, I saw that and I thought, and I'm not clearly this person. Well, maybe, I don't know. You tell me what you think. I thought that was just straight up racism. I thought that this person just believed that a black person could not make couture because that was just a racist assumption on their part. But could it have been part of what you were saying? Haute couture is something that only Parisians can do. Do you think it was the former or the latter or a little bit of both? I think it was both. So this was an article that appeared a little bit after the wedding when um, Mrs. Kennedy was first lady. It appeared in the Ladies Home Journal and it was going back and kind of talking about um, Mrs. Kennedy. And then it goes back to talk about her wedding. And the journalist specifically says her dress was made by a colored woman dressmaker, not the haute couture. Um, and Anla was very offended by this. She actually wrote a letter to Mrs. Kennedy's secretary complaining about this. And she says, she writes, you know, I refer to myself as a noted Negro designer. And she said, I, in every way I am, Negro was the, you know, parlance of her times. That's what she wanted, how she wanted to be referred to. And so they went back and forth. Um, she wanted the Ladies Home Journal to um, publish a retraction. They never did, as far as I know. But she was really, she was standing up for herself because she did yes. not want to be kind of, um, spoken about in this way. And um, for Mrs. Kennedy's, to Mrs. Kennedy's credit, her secretary wrote back and said that she didn't, that was not words that came from her and that she did not approve that um, kind of vocabulary. But, you know, Lowe, Lowe was not positioned as kind of a noteworthy fashion designer at that time. This was something that was starting to happen in the later 60s at the end of her career as she got mm -hmm. more and more press and she was able to tell her own story. Um, but even at that point, she would not have been considered on the same level as French couturiers. No American designers were. The fact that she was a woman, the fact that she was Black were further mm -hmm. kind of marks against that for her. Yes. And, and so, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about the rise of the Black elite uh, well, not the rise, the black elite. We've always had the black elite among us at all times. But I think um, you said that she was especially proud of working with Elizabeth Mance. 
um, yes. and the work that she did for this. Can you tell us about this Atlanta family and um, this wealthy family and the daughter as a pianist? Talk about what it meant for her to sew for an elite Black family, finally. As she, it sounded like she was pretty excited about that. So this would have been in um, the mid to late 60s. We have two dresses that are noted in the book um, that were sewn for Elizabeth Mance. And so Elizabeth Mance was the daughter of Dr. Robert Mance. They were a very prominent Washington, D.C. Black family. He was not only a doctor, he was an um, international civil rights leader um, and church leader. And so, you know, a very prominent family, very well-to-do. And Lowe made a concert dress for Elizabeth Mance. She was a pianist of international pianist. She went to Oberlin College. She performed in Europe. And this dress is absolutely spectacular because it shows you just how closely Anne Lowe thought about these dresses and how they'd be used. It's satin and then covered with this kind of stiffer um, lace, but you see a beautiful break in the lace on a diagonal um, towards the middle of the skirt. And then the bow in the back is set off center. And all of these elements are designed so that the dress drapes beautifully while she is sitting at a piano at this specific angle that she would be to the audience as a pianist. So it's it's absolutely gorgeous. It's, it's an act of engineering as well as art. Yes. But Lowe also made her 1968 wedding dress. And that is the most contemporary piece that we have featured in um, the book. Um, from very late in her career, Lowe suffered from eye problems from like the late, late 50s to the 60s. And she was almost blind by the time that she took this commission. But she had so many decades of muscle memory in her hand, she could still produce. And of course, she had people that she had trained who were working for her. So she made Elizabeth Mance's wedding gown, as well as the bridesmaids and junior bridesmaids gowns. Um, but it was, a, and she talked about, you know, how important it was for her that she could sew for this prominent Black family. And she, we do know that she had other Black clients. Um, in the night, late 50s, there's an image of a woman named Idella Koch, who was a Harlem um, socialite. And she's pictured in the New York age wearing an Ann Lowe dress. And it's credited, um, Ann Lowe made um, Mrs. Koch's um, Easter dress. So we know, and there might be others that we don't have documented for, but she certainly sewed for, again, as you said, people who could afford um, the level that she was making. But to have this kind of prominent um, Black family, you know, be covered in the press and wearing her dress, she attended the wedding, um, that was really important for her. And in the civil rights um, kind of era, in the 60s era, where we start to see more Black pride and Black power become acceptable nationally, she's able to talk about that in newspapers. That's not something that newspapers wanted to hear in the 40s or 50s. Um, Absolutely. So it's this space where she can finally kind of think more about race, where she was not really able to, you know, make that a part of her kind of um, activism um, early on. Her activism was representation, was being in the room, was her beautiful art. Yes, absolutely. And I appreciate the way that you're drawing our attention to um, how she attends the wedding, because I think there's a photograph of like, I think Elizabeth with a bright smile on her face, going up the steps with her dad to the church and Ann Lois getting out of the car with one of her signature hats. And it's like, wow, unlike the white folks wedding she would attend in the 30s and 20s and 40s, she is she's a guest. Mm -hmm. She's dressed as a guest. She is not dressed as a maid. Yeah. She can she can go here and be seen as as family. She can come and really be included in the social environment rather than only having to stay in, quote unquote, her her place. Mm hmm. Absolutely. It's a huge change. Um, and we were so, so lucky to be able to feature these pieces in the book and the exhibition because they come from um, the Mance's family. Um, Diane Mance, who was maid of honor, she's um, uh, the custodian of that dress today in um, Silver Spring, Maryland, as well as Betty Wooden and Sybil Gant, two of the bridesmaids, lent their dresses. Um, so 
be able to talk to them about wearing the dresses, the experiences that they had, um, you know, at that time, that was really, really special. And to be able to put their pieces on display and photograph them for the book, um, it's great to be able to give exposure to these private collections. And I wanted just to talk just very quickly about the construction of some of the Anne Lowe um, gowns, in particular about the bodices. You were saying that Lowe has a particular style for how she built out a dress bodice. And just as a refresher, y'all, you know, I know many folks on the who listen so, but one of the great advantages of a couture gown is that it is so made for you that it's like you don't even need like the bra or a foundation garment in order to wear it properly. All of that is built in. All of that, all of, the, you know, the bust, the everything, everything that you need. Can you talk about what made Ann Lowe's bodices so distinct so that when you were going through hundreds of dresses um, and looking through these documents, when you opened up a dress, you could say, oh, yeah, that's that's hers. So she built, and you, this is her work from the 50s and 60s, where we do see much more structured pieces. We do have pieces from the 20s and 30s, and she made dresses, she built dresses the way, um, you know, that was fitting those silhouettes. But she created, um, she built these bodices um, with uh pads over the bust and then she would uh, create like little um, little threads to make a channel to thread through elastic under the bust. She would have an elastic stay tape that wrapped around the rib cage and then a non-elastic stay tape that wrapped around the waist. And it's a specific way and these would include bones. The specific way she put this all together is very recognizable. So Lowe worked for Saks Fifth Avenue between 1960 and 1962 and those dresses are labeled with Saks Fifth Avenue labels not her name. But because we can look at a dress and say like we can tell this is from the early 60s. There, you know, there's one dress in particular from a private uh, collector, um, Adnan Coutte, where it had a sax label. It was from the early 60s. It had these beautiful floral appliques, which is such a mainstay in her work. Mm -hmm. But it was when we opened it up and compared the way she, the bodice to all the other bodices that look so, so similar that we were able to say, this is an Anne Lowe dress. And that's really special because if there's no label in a dress, it's very, very hard to identify it. Um, so the fact that she built these bodices in this very specific way is allowing us to discover more Anne Lowe that's out there. Um, people have pieces in their collection um, that might have a label um, or have a sax label or might not have a label. And we can look at the inside and say, this is a low. This is one of the things I appreciate about having the students be involved. Um, and I wanted to just turn to just a few statistics. I think when you look at Ann Lowe by the numbers um, or when you try to like imagine how she was able to build this and build these gowns in such a way that it took a team of students like I think the original took two months and five days. Well, two months for the first and then five days. But the recreation is 250 hours over six months. Like a team of students spent six months working on a recreation of a gown that Ann Lowe made twice in less time. In less time. So I'll go back to the Kennedy reproduction. So she did have this really beautiful way of making bodices, but with this particular dress, she also, she built this bodice, um, she cut the panels that go over um, the waistline on the bias, and it creates this absolute gorgeous fit, and it kind yes. of um, connects under the bust, under the pleating. But it also has this very wide, heavy skirt with all of these circular rosettes. Um, so it's very heavy. And so really, the original dress didn't stand a chance. It was, you know, it was designed to be made for one day. 
And yes. so, you know, of course, it's on display at the Kennedy, it has been on display at the Kennedy Library because of Mrs. Kennedy. Um, and so it was not in a position for us to be able to put on display for winter term. So we turned to um, University of Delaware professor Katja Rolsey. She is a fashion design professional. She teaches it. She knows it. Um, and she was able to um, go look at the original dress with uh, Kate Sommel, the head of conservation at Winchester. They spent three days at the Kennedy Library taking measurements, taking pictures, getting every detail they could. And then she went back and she spent six months recreating it. So she redraped it and she tried to, you know, match it as closely as possible to the original. And she enlisted students from the University of Delaware's apparel design program, which is the program that I attended um, way back in the early 2000s. Um, Love that. To kind of um, work on all of like the details of this dress, just the miles of swag, the stitching, everything, um, you know, so much of it hand stitched. Um, so we have this gorgeous recreation from Katya and her team that can now live on. We'll give it back to the JFK library so they'll have an exhibitable piece. And it's really, what I really love about it is that they... Katya and her students just ended up learning so much more about Anne Lowe and the way she worked than I think anyone else could have by like in detail, studying how things were stitched together, how they went together, all of these design decisions. Um, and it, you really see the difference between an haute couture gown, you know, custom made for a particular person and, you know, something that would be ready, made available, ready to wear. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about bringing in the contemporary Black designers. You brought in uh, and B. Michael was there at the symposium, but you had images um, and you had pieces from Dapper Dan. You had pieces from Tracy Reese. Why was that important to bring in contemporary Black designers in an Anne Lowe exhibition? We really wanted to show how her legacy was impacting fashion today. And so we do that through a number of ways. B. Michael may be the most obvious connection because he creates couture in New York City. New York City is a fashion city dominated by ready-to-wear. That's what they're known for. But mm -hmm. through this show, we wanted to show that there was this American couture tradition, and B. Michael's the perfect embodiment of that. We were able to show a beautiful dress that he designed for um, the editor, Dawn Davis, that she wore to the Met Gala. And um, he embroidered on her request the names of Black designers, Elizabeth Keckley, Jay Jackson, Patrick Kelly, and Anne Lowe on the hem of this gorgeous dress. And John Davis talked about how she wanted to bring all of these designers with her into the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So that was one that we were very, very lucky to be able to borrow, but also other couture pieces that he created. Dapper Dan is also a couturier, even though he has kind of a, you know, obviously um, a different kind of clientele. But when he talks about, you know, he talks about design as trying to bring out the personality of the wearer. Mm -hmm. I really believe that Anne Lowe worked in a very similar way. Yes. So we had his this beautiful floral cape that he made for Bevy Smith on display um, as well. And Kim Goldson, who was on Project Runway, we had a Bevy Smith um, dress designed by her, as well as a piece by Bishme Kamarte, also on Project Runway. So we wanted to think about media and the role that media played in building up the persona of a fashion designer, which is something Lowe engaged in later in her career. But she appeared right. on television. She was in a lot of magazines and newspapers telling her own story and building her brand. The two, last two designers we showed was, were Amsal, um, who was, Amsal Abara is a wedding dress designer who created a beautiful brand called Amsal starting in the 1980s. She has since passed um, much too young, but she's one of the only Black designers besides Virgil Abloh who has a fashion house that outlives them. But wow. she, her specialty was in weddings, just like Anne Lowe. And then Tracy Reese is such a beautiful embodiment of a 
woman designer, a Black woman designer. And the pieces that she picked out for us were really paid homage to um, these dressmaker details that she associated with Anne Lowe. So in that way, we kind of think about her contemporary um, impact. I, I really appreciate that, especially the Tracy Reese, because Tracy Reese's design patterns were Vogue. Um, Vogue patterns for sewing. And I have made those patterns. And I was going to wear the dress that I had made, but I couldn't find it. Um, but it reminded me that it was a lot of work. It was called an advanced pattern. And there was a lot of like under stuff that was required to make the Tracy Reese dress. And now, now I'm like, oh, that's why it was so hard. Okay. I understand now. This all makes sense. Uh, that it was just so wonderful. I want to um, end before I get to our last question about why you thought it was important to include student voices in the symposium. So the students got a chance to talk about the work, the many, many hours that they spent creating and, you know, creating this, this dress alongside their professor. Why was it important to have that meet and greet with them? Well, certainly we wanted to show um, students the important, the legacy of Anne Lowe and it's such an important way, a tactile way of learning about this, you know, it's a masterclass in kind of artisanship and dressmaking. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Katya, as a professor, it was really important for her to bring in students and share Anne Lowe's legacy, particularly students of color, um, and really share this legacy with them have them contribute to this beautiful work. Um, these were students that she picked who um, had the skills, the incredible skills um, to kind of help her recreate this dress. And so by bringing in that student element, we're able to kind of pass the baton onto the next generation. And that was really important. I met with the students. They were so sweet and so kind and worked so hard um, to help Katya bring this, this recreation to life. And so we were so happy to be able to um, kind of, you know, have this intergenerational project. I got that same vibe. I think that is absolutely so true. And then the idea of the things that they walk away with, I think one of the students was saying how as she was working on the dress, she was imagining Anne Lowe doing something, doing these similar steps, but not getting the credit that she deserved simply because of the time in which she was born, you know, and that that made a big impression on her as a Black designer, like right now. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who wants to study this. And so I thought that that was a nice way for them to get truly kind of tactile, kinetic learning Yes, about this really powerful piece. Now, tell us about what you have coming up for the end of the year. Um, so the low exhibition is um, has wrapped up, but the book, y'all get the book and you can get the recordings from Winterthur. You can get the recordings of the symposium. So if you were not able to attend, you can now attend by um, by watching, by getting these videos. But what do you have coming up? So at the museum at FIT, I'm working on a show for fall 2024, um, and it's called Africa's Fashion Diaspora. So this is a much more contemporary um, kind of exhibition. But, you know, as a scholar of Black American history through fashion, but more generally, I, I've drawn so many resources, um, uh, historical resources, there's been this ongoing conversation about transnational Black culture, whether mm. this exists or not. So we see W.E.D. Du Bois, we see Paul Gilroy, um, we see people like Marcus Garvey um, mm -hmm. thinking about like, in what ways are Black people across different countries um, similar? Do they have a similar culture? And so we certainly don't want to kind of venture into any ideas about essentialism, but 
I mean, they're really, because there's this ongoing conversation, I really wanted to explore it through fashion design. So I'm looking at contemporary designers and how they're drawing inspiration across the diaspora. We have beautiful pieces. There's a um, Ivorian brand called Kente Gentleman who did this mm. collection inspired by Miles Davis. Or oh. we have um, Sindiso Kamalo is a South African um, designer who did a collection inspired by Harriet Tubman. But we have all of these cross-diasporic connections and these conversations and networks that these designers are um, drawing on. And so sometimes they're looking at inspiration more local to them. But I think about all these designers and how these are similar, telling similar stories, um, whether it's about diasporic um, second generation um, heritage, whether it's about lineage or sustainability or textiles. So I'm looking at all these different lenses. And really, it's all about kind of the storytelling power of fashion. Yes, that sounds so powerful. And just, just hearing about it sounds amazing. I cannot wait to see the pieces um, when you walk through the museum to, to see this come to life, because I know it's going to be amazing. If it is anything remotely as well-researched and as trenchant and as lovingly curated as the Ann Lowe work, I know it's going to be staggering. So I'm going to ask you our last question. The slogan of the Stitch Please podcast is that we will help you get your stitch together. I think I'm going to ask you the question twice. I'm going to ask you to answer as um, what Ann Lowe might say to help us get our stitch together and also what you, Elizabeth Way, would say to help us get our stitch together. In terms of Ann Lowe, I think that she, you know, she really advocated for the creativity of fashion. She really saw it as an art form and she really saw that creativity as the driving force of her life. Um, she was a mother, she was a wife, and you know, she talks about how her marriage, her second marriage, like, you know, really took a backseat to her profession. Um, you know, she certainly kind of uh worked with her son. He was a bookkeeper with her fashion design company, but like so she really so many aspects of her life revolved around that. She used it to teach other Black women to empower them with the same skills that her mother and grandmother empowered her with. But it was all channeled through this creativity and this drive to create. She talks about dreaming of these dresses. Even after she loses her sight, she said, there's so many dresses in my mind I want to create. So I think that she would advise people to really embrace that creativity, to take it seriously, to nurture it, and to put that into your, you know, your sewing or perhaps, you know, any, any other kind of creative outlet, but definitely to, um, to pay attention to that creative drive. Excellent. Now, how about you? What is Elizabeth Way's answer for us? For me, as a curator and historian, I would say that you can um, enhance your sewing practice through history. I think it's great to read about past designers, to read, look at um, historical pieces, objects, and museums, and see what kind of inspiration that can give you to expand your sewing practice. I love it. That is, that's wonderful. Look, we got two bits of advice on one show. <laughs> this is wonderful. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us today. We are so grateful to have you. We're so grateful to have your work in the world. Um, and so grateful to have you here on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you joining us this week and every week for stories that center Black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. We invite you to join the Black Women Stitch Patreon community with giving levels beginning at $5 a month your contributions help us bring the Stitch Please podcast to you every week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. Stitch.